Well, hey, all you wiretappers out there. I have a story today. It's kind of a rehash of one of my old audio stories. I did the uh, just last week, I think, or a couple of weeks ago now, I I posted a story on YouTube that was primarily uh, audio. And it was a story of an, or it was an interview of a guy named Carlo Morelli, who was a guy that took Tony Accardo's daughter to the, uh, to her senior prom and a couple other Accardo stories. And it's pretty interesting. It's kind of a one once in a lifetime gig to, to get a inside information like that. And Cardo's deceased since I uh, recorded that interview, but somebody made a uh, comment in the YouTube uh, file or the YouTube posting about, uh, did you ever talk about Paul Rica or Paul the waiter who was a, a Chicago boss out of the 40s and early 50s on up into the 60s who stayed way in the background. A lot of people don't know the name of Paul Rica and he was a, a really important guy in, in the Chicago outfit back in those days. So I dug out my old interview. I did an interview of him. I never put it up on YouTube. So I, I dug up some pictures in order for you to have some something to look at while I tell the story of Paul the waiter Rica. Uh interesting guy. He, you know, he he stayed in the background just like Tony Accardo did. He and Accardo really would sit together at Norwood's Mayo restaurant. Uh, that's M-E-O restaurant. And I think the building still exists in, in uh, Norwood. I think it's the name of the suburb in Chicago. Anyhow, they would sit up there and people would come up and, and bring them envelopes and, and they'd make decisions. And he always stayed in the background with Accardo and, and they let guys like Sam Giancana be out front. And, and, you know, he was a, like a lightning rod for, uh, for the FBI and, and they sat back there and never went to jail again. Although the government never really quit trying to deport Paul Rica, which, uh, you'll listen to the story and you'll learn a lot more about Paul Rica. You know, one interesting little tidbit about him. He was once accused of doing a hit in Kansas city uh, of a guy who was running a bunch of slot machines out in the county and not kicking up to the mob. And he was warmed several times. Now I don't, they showed his picture. Now, why they showed his picture, I don't know. Uh, but he was uh, during the fifties. He, he well, well, let's listen to the story. He's a, re he's a really interesting guy. Well, Paul Rica or Paul the Waiter Rica was born July tenth, eighteen ninety eight. He died October eleventh, nineteen seventy two. He rose from being a small time member of the Camorra Mafia in Naples, Italy, to the boss of the Chicago outfit. By the time he died in eighteen ninety eight. Paul the Waiter Rica was born Felice de Lucia in Naples, Italy. By 1915, a 17-year-old Felice de Lucia was an associate of the Neapolitan Camorra Mafia. He got his first real taste of mob life when he was ordered to murder a man named Emilio Perilio. Felice de Lucia was arrested, and at trial, a Sicilian named Vincenzo Capasso testified that he saw de Lucia murder Perilio. De Lucia testified he had killed Perilio because Perilio had disgraced his sister by breaking an engagement with her. In other words, it was an honor killing. Felice De Lucia served two years in an Italian jail before escaping. After he escaped, he found that witness, Vincenzo Capasso. And, and you know what happens when a member of the Camorra Mafia finds somebody who testified against him? He killed him by slitting his throat. De Lucia changed his name to Paolo Malio and fled to a small town named Apricina, about 100 miles north of Naples. The 
heat was still on. Copter looking for him. De Lucia left for France. Once he got to France, he found passage on a boat to Cuba. While in Cuba, he met a fellow member of the Camorra Mafia from Naples, a man named Giuseppe Esposito. Esposito was known as Diamond Joe in Chicago and had graduated from the Chicago street gangs in the early 1900s. Young Felice de Lucia did not know at this time, but this connection would determine Paul Waiter's future. He arrived in New York shortly after August 10, 1920, just in time for Prohibition. At that point in time, or sometime shortly thereafter, he anglicized his name to Paul Rica. 1919, the Volstead Act was passed, and Prohibition began in January of 1920. Giuseppe Esposito or Diamond Joe, was just beginning to form a bootlegging gang in Chicago. He recruited his young friend from Cuba, Paul Rica, to come to Chicago and, and join his bootlegging operation. He also enlisted members of the violent Chicago street gang known as the, known as the 42 Gang, and one of these members was Sam Mooney Giancana. When Paul Rica first arrived in Chicago, of course, he moved to the Italian section close to downtown. He managed to get a job as a theater usher, and Diamond Joe hired him as a waiter for a small family restaurant that he owned. The easygoing and genial Paul Waiter was soon on a first-name basis with many of the mobsters who came in and out the door of that restaurant. One of these mobsters included Al Capone. Rick and Capone had several mutual friends among Neapolitan gangsters who had returned to the old country. Capone and Rica became good friends. Al Capone regularly visited the restaurant, and Paul Rica was soon hired as a full-time gangster. He rose very quickly in the Capone organization. He was admired by Capone for his intelligence and ability to obtain cooperation from fellow gang members. They also became close personal friends as well as fellow gang members. Capone was the best man at Rica's wedding in 1927. Because of this unique ability to get along with other gangsters, other, other mobsters, Al Capone named Paul Rica as his emissary to the East Coast Mafia families in, in connection with his bootlegging organization. In May 1932, Al Capone was sent to Atlanta to the U.S. penitentiary there after his conviction for tax fraud. The well-known Frank Nitty became the new boss of the Chicago outfit. Nitty and Capone had agreed in advance that Paul Rica would be the new underboss. In hindsight, historians learned that Frank Nitty was a reluctant and unskillful boss. Most people today agree that Paul Rica soon became the boss in all but title. One problem with Nitty was that the East Coast mob bosses did not think highly of Nitty. By 1932, Charles Lucky Luciano and Mayor Lansky had formed the National Crime Syndicate. They refused to deal with Nitty. Paul Rica frequently overruled Nitty's orders. Such a move would normally be unthinkable in any crime family, but Nitty did not object for some reason. When Prohibition ended in 1933, the outfit had to find other sources of income. Because all East Coast action was claimed by the New York and New Jersey mobs, the Chicago outfit turned its eyes west to the open territory of Los Angeles, California. The outfit saw the film industry as a huge cash cow just waiting to be milked. Nitty sent outfit capo Johnny Roselli to Hollywood with a plan to extort money from major movie studios like RKO, Paramount, MGM, and 20th Century Fox. At this time, Frank Nitty was spending all the money he could earn in the rackets that he owned. He loved the dice, cars, he was a huge gambler, roulette wheels, horse racing, he dropped a bunch of money on horse racing, and he needed more and more money all the time. Roselli went to boxing gyms in Los Angeles and hired a lot of the old pugs with cauliflower ears. He used them to make visits to studio executives and shake them down. When folks like high-powered executives think their lives and their livelihoods are at stake, they'll pay up. The outfit sent another gangster named Willie Byoff to California. Bioff had already 
created a shakedown operation of Chicago movie theater projectionists. He had infiltrated the National Union of Theater Projectionists and used this extortion plans in many cities on the East Coast. Nitty sent Bioff to California. He was instructed to infiltrate the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees. Bioff, aided by Johnny, John, Handsome Johnny Roselli, eventually became the collector for the syndicate-controlled unions in Hollywood. They extorted millions of dollars from major motion picture studios. And Bioff kept hundreds of thousands of dollars for himself. Willie Bioff was just a small-time Chicago thug who went to Hollywood, and it went to his head. He soon was living in a mansion, had expensive fancy suits, wore gold jewelry, drove expensive cars, and had solid gold business cards made up. He caused a lot of attention, a big stir out there in Hollywood, and everybody knew what was going on, and they were afraid. Well-known actor at the time, Robert Montgomery, was a president of the Screen Actors Guild, and he got tired of it. He tipped off the IRS. California federal grand jury was convened, and a witness testified that Willie Bioff had demanded a $25,000 payment from film executive Harry Warner because the boys in Chicago expected a Christmas present. Another witness testified that Bioff told movie mogul Louis B. Mayer there is no room for both of us in this world, and I will be the one who is here. In 1943, Bioff was indicted for tax evasion and other related crimes, as well as extortion and racketeering. They also indicted several of his associates, like Paul the Waiter Rica, Philip D'Andrea, Charlie Cherry Nose Gioe, Johnny Roselli, Lou Kaufman, and Frank the Enforcer Nitty from Chicago. Rather than face prison for this, Bioff decided he would testify against his companions. At this time, Frank Nitty lived in the southwest suburb of Riverside, Illinois. On March 18, 1943, local police would note a group of mobster bosses were meeting at Nitty's suburban home. It turns out that Willie Bioff was the focus of this meeting. At that time, they feared that Bioff had turned government witness. Since he was Nitty's man, Nitty had to deal with a problem. They demanded that Nitty shoot Bioff, even if he had to do it in a crowded courtroom. At this meeting, Rika ordered Nitty to take the fall for all of them. Nitty was facing 15 years in prison. This suggestion did not go over well with Nitty, but he did not know what to do, and by this point in time, Paul Rika had really asserted personal as well as outfit dominance over Frank Nitty. Nitty suffered from severe claustrophobia, and he was terrified of confinement in prison. The next day, March 19, 1943, Nitty's lawyer phoned him to tell him that he had been indicted. After getting that phone call, Nitty hung up the phone, walked into the other room, took a pistol out of a drawer, put it in his coat pocket, put on his overcoat, walked back into the kitchen and told his wife, I'm going for a walk. His actual last words to his wife were, I want you to go to church this afternoon. I want you to go to a novena at Our Lady of Sorrow. After that, he walked away alone. Frank Nitty got to a railroad track about a mile away and shot himself in the head. Paul Rica now became the actual head of the Chicago mob in name as well as in fact. He appointed his friend Tony Accardo as underboss. After the Hollywood prosecutions and for the rest of his life, Paul the waiter Rica was never caught doing a crime. He always let others do the crime for him and took part of the money, as any well-respecting mafia boss would do. In the subsequent trial, Willie Bioff testified against all these Chicago outfit guys. He moved to Phoenix under an assumed name. But Willie Bioff always wanted to be a big-time guy. He could not lay low. By the 1950s, even palling around with well-known politician Barry Goldwater. But his past caught up with him. No more of the 4th, 1955, Willie Bioff turned a key in his pickup truck and a bomb blew him to pieces. 
In regard to the Hollywood prosecutions, on December 30, 1943, a federal grand jury returned a guilty verdict for Rika and his associates. They each got the sentence of 10 years in prison. Paul Rika and Louis Campagna were sentenced to the federal penitentiary in Atlanta. Feeling they were too far away from Chicago, they tried to get transferred to the Leavenworth prison in Kansas. Their request for transfer was denied again and again by Atlanta prison officials. The next request went a little higher, this time to the Bureau of Prisons in Washington, D.C. Again, this petition was denied. Then, working through Campania's wife, Charlotte, Paul Dillon, a one-time campaign manager for Harry S. Truman in St. Louis, was contacted for help in getting the transfer. Over the vigorous opposition of the Atlanta Warden, the Atlanta Prison Board, and the Board of Prisons in Washington, D.C., Campania and Rika received their transfers to Leavenworth. Johnny Roselli had been sent to the federal prison at Terre Haute, Indiana. He contacted a Washington, D.C. lobbyist and gambler named Sam Beard to help get the rest of the outfit men sent to St. Louis. Years later, a memo will surface showing that the U.S. Attorney General, Tom Clark, requested that all the Chicago outfit men who had been convicted in the Hollywood extortion crimes be transferred to Leavenworth. Once there, Chicago mob underboss Anthony Cardo and outfit political fixer Murray the Camel Humphreys paid regular visits. Each time they came, they would both sign in as Joseph I. Bolger, a mob attorney. Rika and Campania were now back with old mob associates Johnny Roselli, Cherry Nose Gioe, and Philip D'Andrea. The group now made attempts to get parole, even though less than one-third of their sentences had been served. The stumbling block for Rika and Campania was their non-payment of back taxes totaling almost $600,000. When Accardo and Humphreys arrived in Kansas City on the train to visit the prisoners, a young up-and-comer with the Kansas City crime family named Nick Savella would meet them and drive them to Leavenworth. Nick Savella would go on to be the boss of Kansas City and eventually become an equal partner with outfit boss Joy Iupa in the Vegas casino skim conspiracy in the 1970s. An attorney named Eugene Bernstein was a former employee of the Eternal Revenue. He arranged for the $600,000 in backpacks from money that he asserted was anonymous donations. This was immediately after the war, 1946-47. Al Capone will die January the 8th, 1947. The outfit will mobilize their political machine in Chicago to work for the election of Harry Truman in 1948. They make connections with political fixtures close to the Truman campaign. Again, with the help of Paul Dillon, former campaign manager for President Truman, a petition was filed for parole. This is about three years after they were sentenced. One week later, Campania, Rica, Gioe, DeAndrea, and Roselli were all released on parole. They all took the train back to Chicago, and a huge party was held in their honor. This travesty of justice caused a public outcry, and the men were warned to stay away from Chicago. Through the efforts of their attorneys, the men were soon able to return to their homes and businesses. However, as a condition of his parole, Rika could no longer be present in the company of other mobsters. Rika then, on the surface, gave the appearance that he was going into retirement. What he did, in fact, he continued to serve as a senior consultant to the outfit's leadership, Tony Accardo, and no decision would be made again during his lifetime without his knowledge. The early paroles in the case enraged the Chicago press, which published Rika's claim that his influence extended clear into the White House. Printed accounts had Rika instructing his lawyers to find out who had the final say-so in granting him a early parole. And he was quoted as saying, That man must want something, money, favors, a seat in the Supreme Court. Find out what he wants and get it for him. While several of the Chicago newspapers were bitter enemies of President Harry Truman, the fact was that Attorney General Tom Clark, who had been appointed by Harry Truman, did allow the early parole of Paul Rick and the others. 
Clark was appointed to the next opening on the Supreme Court. 1952, the conservative Chicago Tribune called for the impeachment of the now Supreme Court Justice Tom Clark because of his utter unfitness for any position of public responsibility and especially for a position on the Supreme Court. It's vitriolic editorial rage. We have been sure of his unfitness ever since he played his considerable role in releasing the Capone gangsters after they served a bare minimum of their terms. Once Rika was back in circulation, he became a real power in Chicago underworld. Because of the parole restriction, he appointed Tony Joe Batters Accardo to be the boss. Remember that Accardo had visited Rika in Leavenworth by masquerading as his, his attorney and had kept Rika informed of syndicate activities all along. Rika remained as a senior advisor and the real power behind the business decisions made in the outfit. He and Accardo both remained in the background as best they could. They remained well insulated from any law enforcement investigations into outfit activities. The Kefauver Committee hearings came along in the 1950s as they investigated the organized crime families in each of the major eastern and midwestern cities. By the time they got done in Chicago, they were to put out a statement and say that Paul Rica was a national head of the crime syndicate. A few years later, the McClellan Committee investigating organized crime referred to Rica as America's most important criminal. Rika's testimony on the witness stand before each of these committees was punctuated by frequent pleas of the Fifth Amendment. In 1957, the government was still after him. Paul Rika was stripped of his citizenship and two years later deported. He resorted to a myriad of appeals and delaying actions, even getting a court order to stay on deportation to Italy by bringing an action before an Italian court demanding that his Italian citizenship be dropped. In a remarkable action, the Italian government would not take Rica back, even to serve out his old murder term, uh, presumably because he might adversely influence Italian prisons and Italian criminals and Italian Camorra and Sicilian mafia members. Frustrated, American immigration officials ordered Rica to apply to other countries to grant him refuge. Following instructions, Rica sent letters to some 60 countries supposedly seeking asylum. But apparently, in an idealistic desire for full disclosure, he also included a packet of news clippings to to explain why the United States wanted him to immigrate elsewhere. No nation expressed the slightest interest in accepting him. The government was still trying to deport Rica when he died in 1972. By then, Rica might have well accepted deportation to Italy. He spent many hours at the Alitalia terminal at O'Hare Airport listening to Italian tourists speaking the native tongue. The consensus was that Rica had turned a bit senile, spending so much time at the airport. Federal agents were suspicious. They believed he was arranging meetings with smugglers of contraband or drugs. During the 1950s, Rica threw a cardo as the boss of the outfit oversaw the outfit moving into slot machines, vending machines, counterfeiting cigarette and liquor tax stamps, expanding narcotic smuggling. Accardo placed slot machines in gas station restaurants and bars throughout the outfit's territory, which took in Chicago all the way up to Milwaukee, all the way down into Ohio, Iowa. Outside of Chicago, the outfit expanded into Las Vegas. Accardo made sure that all the legal Las Vegas casinos used his slot machines. In Kansas and Oklahoma, they took advantage of the, of the official ban on alcohol sales to introduce bootlegged alcohol. The outfit eventually dominated organized crime in most of the western United States. To reduce the outfit's exposure to legal prosecution, 
Accardo phased out some traditional activities such as labor racketeering and extortion. He also converted the outfit's brothel business into call girl services. The result of these changes was a golden era of profitability and influence for the outfit. Cardo and Rica continued to emphasize keeping a low profile. They allowed men like Sam Giancana to attract attention instead. One great example of this was in 1961. There was a wrestling tag team getting a lot of attention. Two men named Lou Albano and Tony Altamare were wrestling as a mafia-inspired tag team called the Sicilians. Tony Accardo supposedly went to them and asked them to drop the gimmick in order to avoid any mob-related publicity. By being aware of negative publicity and keeping a low profile, Accardo and Rica commanded the outfit much longer than the flashier Al Capone. It's alleged that Paul Rica once said, Accardo had more brains for breakfast than Capone had in a lifetime. In 1957, the IRS made it evident that Tony Accardo was in their sights. He and Rica agreed to turn the official position as outfit boss over to Rica's old bootlegging gang member, Sam Mooney Giancana. Many suspected a large number of Chicago-area murder victims were men who had been killed by Giancana merely because Paul the Waiter wished that they would go away. It is believed that Accardo became Giancana's consigliere and removed himself from the day-to-day running of the organization. Law enforcement did note that Accardo retained great respect. They believed that Giancana still had to obtain the approval of Accardo and Rica on major business, including all murders. Unlike Accardo and Rica, Sam Giancana lived an ostentatious lifestyle. He frequented posh nightclubs. He dated high-profile, well-known singer Phyllis McGuire. And he refused to distribute some of the profits from outfit-controlled casinos in the Caribbean to other members. It was during this time that FBI agent Bill Romer and his top hoodlum squad started what became known as Operation Lockstep. Operation Lockstep had agents assigned to it, and they were to follow Giancana everywhere he went, right behind him. If he left in a car, they drove, they pulled away from the curb in their car and didn't even let one car get in between them. If he walked out and walked down the street, they walked a few feet behind him. If he went into a restaurant, the agents obtained a table as close as possible to Giancana and his party. If he played golf, they horned their way in, so they become, they forced him directly behind Giancana. If he went to a movie, they sat behind him. Rica and others in the outfit believed that Giancana was attracting too much attention because of this. Giancana was so frustrated by this, he sued the FBI in civil court for harassment. And in the final decision, the court ordered the FBI agents had to at least maintain one foursome between their foursome and Giancana. Soon after, the, soon after, the Bureau was able to put Giancana in jail for federal contempt of court. He got one year for this in 1966. This was the final straw, and Accardo and Rica replaced Giancana with a much lower profile heart case named Joy Ayupa. Rica died in his bed October 1972. This was an event that would cause some shockwaves in the outfit. Now ousted outfit boss Sam Giancana and Paul Rica went back to the 42 gang days in Diamond Joe Esposito's bootlegging empire. For so long as Paul the waiter was alive, Giancana was safe, as were some of Giancana's more erratic backers like our friend Mad Sam DeStefano. Within months of Rica's death, DeStefano was murdered by other mob members. A couple of years later, Giancana was assassinated as well. Rica's hand was all-powerful, but not from the grave. Thus ends the story of Paul the Waiter Rica, well-known mobster, but spent all of his life basically in the shadows in the background. Thanks, folks. I hope you enjoy that. On the advice of my lawyer, I respectfully refuse to answer that question. 
as my truthful answer would make time to incriminate me. Music provided by our good friend and super fan from Portland, Oregon, Casey McBride. Thanks, Casey.